my terrifying experience with what I think is a skimwalker by Connor P. This story goes way back. I believe it was either 2009 or 2010. It's hard to believe that this was over a decade ago now. Anyway, my girlfriend Lakaila and I took a road trip to visit her mom and some of her family living there on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. We also brought along our friend, Shannon, who was also of Navajo descent. We arrived there at night and, as you probably know, there isn't much electricity or anything like that on a reservation. Even running water is scarce, so it gets very dark out there at night. I found it absolutely remarkable how the stars lit up in the dark sky. You could see everything. There was no, it, there was no light pollution. It was like being in a planetarium. Even now, I can remember how picturesque it was. I suppose nature had to give us something beautiful before it unleashed one of its abnormalities upon us. Shannon wanted to visit her friend named Luis, and we tagged along. We soon arrived at Luis's Hogan and went inside. Inside the floor was earthen, lit only by the dim glow of kerosene lamps. It truly was a different way of life out here. Up to that point, I had never been inside a traditional Navajo Hogan, and this was all new and interesting to me. After some time, Lakaila inquired about using the restroom. You are welcome to use the outhouse around back, but be careful. There have been some sightings of mountain lions recently. Luis handed me a 357 revolver with some rounds to load it with. You should accompany her, just to be safe. I was enthralled, and I was no stranger to pistols or anything. I loaded the cylinder, closed it up, and before we loaded out, I was ready to go. The starlight illuminated a gravel path leading to the outhouse. I was on high alert the entire time, fully expecting a mountain lion to come ripping around the corner any moment. So I was paying extra attention to my surroundings. I couldn't help but notice that things were quiet. Too quiet if you ask me. This is typically indicative of, you know, a large predator being around. I gripped the revolver tightly in my hand. Suddenly, I saw something moving through the brush. But it was so dark I couldn't tell if it was just my eyes playing tricks on me. The last thing I wanted to do was blow away someone's dog on a Native American reservation. Another thing I noticed was a distinct odor in the air. It smelled like someone had emptied out a year's worth of bedpans and let it saturate in the hot sun. All in all, it smelled freaking terrible. It's a good thing that I have a strong stomach, or that stench would have put any average man on his butt. Lakaila didn't seem to mind it at all, though she finished up inside and we started heading back. Something darted out of the brush as we were doing so. I raised the revolver, but I didn't shoot it first. I didn't get a good look at it. Still, it ran off quickly. As I stated before, I was a bit apprehensive about carrying a firearm on Navajo land. I didn't want to shoot anything or anyone by accident other than an attacking mountain lion. We returned to the Hogan, and I unloaded the revolver and returned it to Louise. Louise had her kids there, and it was a rather small living space. She made us feel welcomed, but I got the sense that she didn't want us to stay there. No sweats, we still had to get to Shannon's mom's house anyway. I should mention that Shannon's mom is Hopi and lives in a separate area of the reservation. To make a long story short, there is no law of loss between the Hopi and Navajo tribes. Getting around the reservation can be problematic if you're unfamiliar with the area, 
and directions from locals could be convoluted. Well, you take a right here, then there's an old red tire over there, and then you take down that fork, you know, that you'll see it in the road, and then you make a left. So pretty much it's kind of hard to understand what the heck's actually going on. Unfortunately, the Navajo Nation is 27,000 square miles of dirt roads and dry wash areas. It's easy to get lost out there, as there's enough shrubbery to make it impossible to see in any real direction. But even she had struggled to locate the Hopi territory. The road was narrowly lined with pinyon trees and juniper bushes. As we made our way down the road, as I was driving, I kept seeing something move through the brush, keeping pace with us. Suddenly, something came out of the forest and struck the car. Holy crap, what the heck was that? I immediately hit the brakes, thinking that I might have hit someone. Shannon then leaned forward and grabbed my shoulder. Do not get out of the car, we need to keep going. I turned back to look at her. You don't think I should go check? My voice stopped. My lip began to involuntarily quiver when I saw something through my back window. It looked like a very tall person, crouching at a somewhat awkward angle. In the faint glow of the taillights, I could see what looked like an animal hide. Then a pair of two glowing eyes came into view. Oh, hell no, I said and slammed down on the gas pedal and peeled out of there. When I looked into the rear view mirror, my worst fears came true. There was a massive creature chasing after the car, gaining on us. I knew I was not going crazy when I saw something earlier. The thing then leaped up into the air and disappeared from view, but I instantly knew where it was going to end up. I slammed on the brakes before the creature landed directly in front of us. As it stood to its feet, all three of us got a good look at its form. It appeared to be a cross between a mountain lion and some sort of human. Its bottom half resembled a pair of human legs surmounted by a muscular torso that wore black and red markings. Its chest and torso were quite muscular. Its animalistic face leered at us with a pair of ethereal white eyes, bearing a row of sharp canines at us. It was almost grinning at us, if that makes sense. We have to get out of here! Shannon screamed as I threw the car into reverse, almost swerving off the road before quickly maneuvering the vehicle to face the opposite direction. A little trick I learned during my park ranger training. It's good to know if you need to back out of somewhere quickly, you can. As we flew back down the road, I kept looking in the rear view mirror to see if that thing was still following us, but there was nothing, which was almost as unnerving. We finally got back to the highway that led to Tuba City. I think we lost it, I said as I took a left onto the road. But to my absolute horror, I saw something running through the forest alongside us. Now that we were back on a paved road, albeit one that was full of potholes and rocks, I was able to pick up enough speed to outrun the creature. However, it left us with a parting gift. Just before we left it in the dust, it emerged from the forest once more and struck the car again, almost causing us to spin out into a ditch. But as I was able to stabilize the car, I am certain the same chill felt crawl down each of our spines when it let out a loud, angry wail that could be heard over the car's engine with the windows rolled up. I've been through some real scary times in my life, but nothing has ever put the fear of God in me like that sound did. We finally made it out to Tuba City, and I don't think I slowed down one time that entire trip. We stopped at a gas station before driving the long way to Hopi territory. When we arrived at Shannon's mother's house, Shannon told her what had happened, speaking in hushed tones. Lakaila and I weren't sure what to do or say. 
we'd come face to face with an ancient creature known as a skimwalker. Not too many folks lived to tell the tale about it. Shannon's mom burnt some sage and prayed for us, but I don't think we slept a wink that night. Now before I jump right into this next story, it's a long one. I had to connect several theories, several crimes, and several murders over several different years to be able to put this together for you. It does end up in the Redwood State Park, and I promise you it will end up in the woods at some point. But there's a few things we have to cover in the beginning so you understand why this is such a big deal and how many serial killers actually roam the woods of our great country. It could be argued that a reign of terror began in California in the late 1960s. In the South, the summer of 1969 saw the Manson family murders in Los Angeles. This included the infamous home invasion, in which actress Sharon Tate and four others were killed at knife or gunpoint. Tate was eight and a half months pregnant when she died. Northern California was rocked by the homicides and serial killings around the same time. This is the subject of today's video. The mysterious Zodiac Killer murdered five people and wounded two others in and around San Francisco. David Faraday and Betty Jensen were fatally shot in December 1968. They were a young couple, both under the age of 18 years old. The killer shot another couple in July of 1969, 19-year-old Michael Magot and 20-year-old Darlene Farron. Magot survived, but Farron sadly died from her injuries. 20-year-old Brian Hartnell and 22-year-old Cecilia Shepard were stabbed in September of the same year. Hartnell survived, but Shepard passed away two days after the attack. The killer's next victim was Paul Stein, a 29-year-old taxi driver. He was shot nearly two weeks after the assault on Hartnell and Shepard. The Zodiac Killer is suspected of other murders. He would contact the media to take credit for over 37 murders, but investigators don't agree on whether he was actually the perpetrator. The Zodiac Killer was never caught and his identity remains unknown to this day. He is believed to be a white male based on multiple witness statements. San Francisco is about 70 miles north of Santa Cruz. The Zodiac murders were probably too close for comfort for many Santa Cruzans. Others might have been relieved to have a distance between them and this vicious killer. Little did they know, though, Santa Cruz was about to fall victim to a killing spree of its own. The extent of it would be dubbed the murder capital of the world. The Ota Residence, October 19, 1970 On October 19, 1970, firefighters responded to reports of a blaze in the coastal town of Sokol. The burning building has a custom-built Japanese-inspired mansion, home, eye to, home to eye surgeon Dr. Victor Ota and his family. Two cars belonging to Ota and his secretary blocked access to the property. These were parked there by the killer. Once on the scene, emergency responders set out to tackle the blaze. One firefighter was searching for a fire hydrant to attach another hose when his flashlight caught something floating in the swimming pool. He took a closer look and then discovered five bodies in the water. The victims were identified as Dr. Victor Ota, his wife Virginia, their two sons, 12-year-old Derek and 11-year-old Taggart, and Victor's secretary, Dorothy Cadwallader. They were bound with silk scarves and shot to death. 
execution style. A note was found tucked beneath the windshield wiper of the family's Rolls Royce. The killer typed it out using Dr. Ota's very own typewriter. The note claimed that the people of the free universe would kill anyone who misuses or destroys the natural environment. The police appealed to the public for any information. They received numerous responses about a man in his mid-twenties named John Lindley Frazier. He lived in a small shack about a half of a mile away from the Ota residence. He was known for telling anyone who would listen that he had been selected by God to save the environment, and rich men like Victor Ota were destroying the world. Frazier was arrested in his shack four days after the Ota murders. He was deemed legally sane and stood trial for five counts of murder. On his first day in court, he turned up with shaggy hair and a long beard on one side of his face, and a head free of hair and nothing else, even the eyebrow was missing, on the other side. He later fully shaved his head following advice from his attorney. On November 21st, 1971, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. This would be changed to life imprisonment in 1972 after the death penalty was abolished in California. Frazier took his own life in Mule Creek State Prison in 2009. The Ota's two teenage daughters were away at boarding school, luckily. The eldest sadly ended her own life seven years later, though. In the days between the Ota murders and Frazier's arrest, several locals admitted to feeling afraid and sleeping with loaded guns. Unfortunately, though, this was just the beginning. Marianne Pesk and Anita Lucheza, May 7, 1972. On May 7, 1972, 18-year-old Fresno State University students Mary Ann Pesk and Anita Lucheza went missing. They planned to hitchhike to Stanford to visit friends and were reported missing when they never turned up. Marianne's skull was discovered three months later on the Loma Prieta mountain. A subsequent search failed to locate further remains or any sign of Anita. Aiko Ku, September 14, 1972. And just a month later in September, 15-year-old Aiko Ku went missing on her way to a dance class. Her mother had advised her to take the bus because she was concerned about her daughter's hitchhiking habit. Mrs. Ku suspected Aiko must have hitchhiked after missing the bus, but the police said it was more likely that Aiko had run away. Mrs. Ku printed and distributed flyers, but nobody came forward with any information. She was convinced foul play was involved. It's likely some investigators agreed to an extent considering the death of Marianne, but the police seemed intent on pursuing the teen runaway theory. Lawrence Whitey White October 13th, 1972. On October 13th, 55-year-old Lawrence Whitey White was beaten to death with a baseball bat. His body was discovered the next day in the woods near Highway 9. Now, this is very brief, but it might play into the actual serial killer theory a little bit later. Mary Guilfoyle, October 24th, 1972. On October 24th, 24-year-old student Mary Guilfoyle went missing after attempting to hitchhike near Cabrillo College. Her skeletonized body was discovered in the Santa Cruz Mountains almost four months later, relatively close to where Mary Ann Pesk's skull was found. Father Henry Tomai, November 2nd, 1972. 
On November 2nd, 64-year-old Catholic priest, Father Henry Tomei, was stabbed and stomped to death at St. Mary's Church in Los Gatos. His body was found in the confessional booth. A witness saw the attacker fleeing the church but having only glimpsed enough to describe him as a tall, thin man. This, of course, didn't give investigators much to go on. The police initially suspected it was a robbery gone wrong. Cindy Shawl, January 7, 1973 The murders continued into the new year. On January 7, 1973, 18-year-old Cabrillo, college student, Cynthia Cindy Shaw went missing. Over the following two weeks, various people stumbled across dismembered body parts. Only the right hand and head were never recovered. Fingerprints from the left hand confirmed Shaw's identity. X-rays of the severed torso also matched Shaw's X-rays from the previous year. Cabrillo College and UCSC, the University of California, Santa Cruz, students were warned against hitchhiking because it seemed female hitchhikers were being targeted. UCSC students were advised to travel in pairs, always tell someone where they were going, and catch the bus even when it's inconvenient. Students were also told to wave at campus patrol cars if they needed a ride. Staff would be willing to give them a lift because of the recent murders. Jim and Joan Gianera. On the 25th of January, 25-year-old Jim Gianera and his 21-year-old wife Joan were shot dead in their home on Western Drive. Jim had a history of disturbing narcotics, so investigators assumed the murders were connected to drugs and failed to link this crime to the previous murders. Fortunately, the Gianera's child was with Joan's mother that night and survived. Kathy Francis David Hughes, Damon Francis, January 25th, 1973. That very same day, 29-year-old Kathy Hughes and her two sons, 9-year-old David Hughes and 4-year-old Damon Francis, were fatally shot in their home on Mystery Shot Road. Kathy's husband, who was away at the time of the shooting, also dealt drugs. Plus, their house was previously occupied by Jim Gianera. So these murders were again assumed to be related to narcotics of some kind. Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Louis. On February 5th, two UCSC students, 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Louis, disappeared. Both women were reported missing the next day. Their friends feared the worst and searched the woods but found no sign of them. And now we finally come up upon where you all have been waiting for. The Henry Cowell Redwood State Park Murders, February 10th, 1973. On February 10th, four teenage friends were camping at Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. The park is situated between the cities of Santa Cruz and Scotts Valley near the town of Felton. The main section of the park contains over 15 miles of hiking trails which some have led to lonely beaches along the San Lorenzo River. Other paths boast breathtaking views of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's ordinarily a beautiful place to enjoy nature, but in February 1973, 9-year-old Brian Scott Card, 18-year-olds David Olicker and Robert Spector, and 15-year-old Mark Drybelbis were fatally shot with a 22 caliber pistol. After the media descended, District Attorney Peter Chang was heard muttering, 
This must be Murdersville, USA. Several news outlets reported him referring to Santa Cruz as the murder capital of the world. Chang claimed he was misquoted, but considering the disturbing amount of high numbers of recent murders, in which victims were often seemingly targeted at random, many Santa Cruzans were understandably frightened. The last few years had indeed felt like living in the murder capital of the world. As a side note, Henry Cow Redwood State Park became a serial killer's hunting ground once again in 1981 when David Carpenter shot a couple who were hiking. The male victim survived, but the female was fatally wounded. Fred Perez, February 13, 1973. Three days after the campers were killed in the park, 72-year-old Fred Perez was weeding in front of his yard outside of his home in Lighthouse Avenue when a car passed, circled back, and then pulled over nearby. The driver got out, seemingly at random, and fatally shot Perez with a rifle in broad daylight. Neighbors and witnesses recorded the shooter's license plate. This led to a suspect being stopped and arrested shortly after the shooting. The man's name was Herbert Mullen. Herbert Mullen was born April 18, 1947. He was popular at school growing up, at home, his father was reportedly strict, but not abusive. When Mullen was 16, he was voted most likely to succeed by his classmates. However, he also began to struggle around this time. One of his close friends died in a car accident. Mullen made shrines to his friend and began to obsess over various things, including reincarnation. He also started hearing voices. By his mid-twenties, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and had been repeatedly admitted to mental health facilities. When he wasn't in a hospital, his use of LSD and marijuana might have amplified his symptoms. With Mullen in custody, the police were able to question him and learn more about his crimes and motivations. Mullen's birthday fell on the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. He believed this meant he was responsible for preventing further quakes and the human bloodshed that he would subsequently go after would prevent these natural disasters. He said the Vietnam War averted earthquakes on American soil, but with the war ending for Americans, more deaths would be required to prevent another quake. He heard voices reinforcing this message. Often, this was the voice of his father. Mullen pretended he had car trouble when he came across Lawrence White on the highway. White offered to help him in exchange for a ride. Mullen said White sent telepathic messages offering himself as a sacrifice so the others could be saved. Mullen claimed his father telepathically instructed him to kill Mary Gilfoyle. He picked her up when she was hitchhiking and then stabbed her through the chest while driving. He then sliced open her body looking for pollution, removing her organs and hanging them on tree branches for examination. Having doubts about his actions, he visited Father Henry Tomai to confess. As with Lawrence White, Mullen allegedly believed the priest offered himself as a sacrifice. Tomai was stabbed and beaten to death in his confessional booth. In early 1973, Mullen blamed his former drug use for his problems. He went to confront Jim Gianera, one of his high school classmates who had given him drugs back in the day. Mullen went to Gianera's former residence, where a woman named Kathy Francis answered the door. She told him the Gianeras lived down the road now. 
At the correct house, Mullen shot Jim Gianera, who crawled to tell his wife Joan to lock herself in the bathroom, but Mullen kicked down the door before shooting her too. Both Gianeras died from their injuries. Thankfully, their child was at Joan's mother's house that night. Mullen returned to the Francis household where he shot Kathy and her two sons, allegedly believing Kathy telepathically offered herself and her children as sacrifices. Although there are some disputes over whether he murdered Kathy and her sons before leaving to kill the Gianeras. The following month, Mullen was hiking in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park when he came across four friends who were camping illegally. He pretended to be a park ranger and told them to leave because they were polluting the forest. He later returned and shot them with a 22 caliber pistol because they were still there. He took their 22 caliber rifle, which he used to kill Fred Perez in broad daylight a few days later, leading to his arrest. But some press outlets reported that Mullen was not only known to Jim Gianera, but also to Fred Perez and Kathy Francis's widower. It is unclear how well acquainted they actually were. In August 1973, Mullen was sentenced to life imprisonment. He was denied parole eight times and remained incarcerated until his death in August of 2022. He died of natural causes at the age of 75. In the immediate aftermath of Mullen's arrest, many Santa Cruzans breathed a sigh of relief, thinking the killer was caught and the worst was over. Mullen's victims differed in age, gender, race, and religion. His methods and weapons also varied. Most of the victims were shot, but some were stabbed and or beaten. This is why investigators struggled to connect his crimes prior to his arrest. If Mullen hadn't confessed, it's possible we wouldn't have linked him to many of these murders. Mary Guilfoyle was the only female hitchhiker Mullen confessed to killing. Some people thought, or perhaps hoped, Mullen was also responsible for abducting the other hitchhikers. But a few days after Mullen's arrest, road workers stumbled upon human remains just off Eden Canyon Road in Castro Valley. At first, the workers thought they were looking at discarded mannequins, but they soon realized they had found two headless and dismembered corpses. The bodies were later identified as Allison Louie and Rosalind Thorpe. Panic erupted with people asking how bodies were still turning up if Mullen was off the streets. District attorney Peter Chang replied, We then have another homicidal maniac. Thorpe and Louis went missing before Mullen's arrest, so his involvement wasn't impossible. But both women had been sexually violated, as had Cindy Shaw. This, along with the dismembering, wasn't consistent with Mullen's usual M.O. There wasn't much at this point that two serial killers there wasn't much doubt at this point that two serial killers had been stalking Santa Cruz at the same time, and only one of them was in custody currently. Chang did try to imply out-of-town killers could be using Santa Cruz as a dumping ground, but this didn't really make sense because the victims were all local college students. When an acquaintance calls In late April 1973, the Santa Cruz Police Department received a call made from a phone back in Pueblo, Colorado. The caller confessed to killing his mother and her best friend. Recognizing the voice as belonging to a local man named Big Ed, the police laughed and told him to stop messing with them. Big Ed, full name Edmund Kemper, called again a few hours later and this time, the call led to his arrest. He confessed to murdering a further six women 
Mary Ann Pask, Anita Lucheza, Aiko Koo, Cindy Shaw, Rosalind Thorpe, and Allison Louie. Edmund Kemper was born December 18, 1948. He was known to torture insects as a child, and he killed two family cats before dismembering one and decapitating the other. His mother, Clarnell, struggled with alcohol addiction. She often abused and belittled Edmund, her only son. This included mocking him for his height. He was 6'4", telling him no one would ever love him and locking him in the basement because she feared he would hurt and molest his sisters. The abuse worsened after his parents split in 1957 and his father, who he was close to, moved out. Edmund was later sent to live with his paternal grandparents. He didn't enjoy this time with them. He said his grandfather was senile and his grandmother emasculated both him and his grandfather. At the age of 15, he shot his grandmother with a rifle following an argument. His grandparents had previously confiscated the rifle after Edmund used it to needlessly shoot animals. His grandmother's last words were reportedly, you'd better not be shooting the birds again. When his grandfather returned home from a grocery run, Edmund fatally shot him in the driveway. He later said, I just wondered how it would feel to shoot grandma and claimed he killed his grandfather so he wouldn't have to learn about his dead wife. Kemper was arrested and later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He was sent to Astacardero State Hospital for the criminally insane. He was released on parole into the care of his mother and on his 21st birthday, he was a free man. Clarnell had married and divorced while Edmund was in the hospital, so she now had the last name Strandberg. She worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Edmund's juvenile record was expunged after psychiatrists deemed him rehabilitated. He aspired to work in law enforcement, but he was rejected because, being 6'9", he was considered too tall to be a police officer. Despite this, he was well-liked by local police officers, he frequented bars where they hung out, one officer gave him a police academy trainee's badge. During this time, his home life remained turbulent. His neighbors often heard him embroiled in loud arguments with his mother. He moved out after saving some money, but would often return to his mother's home due to financial difficulties. He took to driving around university areas frequented by young female hitchhikers. He claimed he picked up upwards of 150 women and drove them to their destination. These weren't quite the uneventful rides most of his passengers thought they would have though, because Kemper hid weapons in the car and attempted to lock passengers in without them noticing. A woman seemed reluctant to travel with a giant lone man. He would look at his watch, feigning impatience. This usually worked because it pressured the women to make a quick decision and gave the impression he didn't care one way or another about giving them a ride. He picked up Marianne and Anita, offering to take them to Stanford, but instead he took them to an isolated area in the woods in Alameda where he stabbed them and strangled them to death. Anita was locked in the trunk while he first killed Marianne. He took the bodies home, getting pulled over by the police on the way for a broken taillight. The officer didn't detect anything else was amiss, and Kemper was sent on his way. Back at his apartment, he did terrible things to the bodies and photographed the corpses. He then dismembered the bodies and discarded them in the mountains. Aiko Koo and Cindy Shaw were killed and violated in a very similar way. Kemper buried Cindy's head in his mother's garden facing her bedroom because his mother 
always wanted people to look up to her. He would often assault and do very unfortunate things to these severed heads of the victims repeatedly before disposing of them. Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Lee were abducted, murdered, and violated after struggling to get home on public transport. They accepted Kemper's offer of a ride because he had a UCSC sticker on his car. The advice the university issued to students claimed drivers with stickers would get them to their destination safely. Kemper was able to obtain a sticker because his mother worked at the university. Thorpe was picked up first, so Louis was probably reassured by both the sticker and another woman being in the car. But Kemper was able to overpower both victims with his strength and size. On April 20th, 1973, Kemper bludgeoned his mother with a claw hammer while she slept and slit her throat with a penknife. He dismembered the body, violated the severed head before using it as a dartboard. He put his mother's corpse in a closet and went out to a bar. After returning home, he invited his mother's 59-year-old friend Sally Hallett over to watch a movie but strangled her to death when she arrived. He fled to Colorado thinking he would be a prime suspect in his mother's murder. When there was no mention of it on the radio, he realized the bodies might not have been found yet. He stopped at a payphone and confessed. He later said he called the police because the original purpose was gone, and he was, at that point, too tired to keep going on. He was tried in October 1973. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The psychiatrist deemed him legally sane because he showed signs of malice intent, and that he was aware that his crimes were wrong. On November 8th, he was sentenced to seven to life for each of the eight murders, to be served subsequently. He's been repeatedly denied parole over the years and remains at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, where he narrated hundreds of audiobooks as part of the prisoner program. He is currently 74 and eligible to reapply for parole next year. At one point, Kemper and Mullen were actually incarcerated at the same prison. Kemper said he hated Mullen, calling Mullen a cold-blooded killer who murdered people for no good reason. He didn't believe Mullen heard voices telling him to kill his victims. Kemper also claims he trained Mullen to stop bothering people when they were watching TV by throwing water on him when he was being annoying and giving him peanuts when he was quiet. It's likely Kemper was bullying Mullen to some extent considering the size difference between the two men. Kemper also has a very high IQ, so he would be capable of outsmarting most of his fellow inmates. And that there is the story of how two serial killers simultaneously were killing people, leaving their bodies all over the cities, all in the woods, and even killing people in state parks. Now, I do have plans to cover an actual state park killer very, very soon, but I wanted to cover this story because I felt like it would be fun. It's definitely a classic, and I know a lot of people have been requesting more wilderness crime type stuff. Now, I do have more coming soon. They will be more in-depth, but it does take time and I do appreciate all of your patience. Thank you so much for supporting The Swamp, and I'll see you next time with another creepy episode. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true Deep Woods Horror Stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to punch that like button. Be sure to subscribe if you're new, turn on notifications so you don't miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to smack that like button like I said, 
Don't forget to submit yours at swampdweller.net if you would like to hear it shared in a future episode. You can also submit them at r slash thedarkswamp on Reddit. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, but you still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Thank you, as always, for supporting the Swamp the way you do. I couldn't do this on a daily basis without you all. If you guys would like to support the channel, you can, of course, subscribe, hit that like button, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the fun social medias, or check out the merch store that you can find in the description. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool Swamp threads. Be sure to comment down below what story was your favorite. If you made it to the end, the code word is PURPLEBUFFALO. Be sure to comment that, confuse anybody down below, let me know you made it to the end, and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.